Hello, and welcome to the Years of Lead pod. I'm your host, Alexander Reed Ross, and this is the podcast where we generally go over the history of the Years of Lead, a period of intense violence between 1967 and 1982, in which the extra-parliamentary left and the extra-parliamentary right fought it out in the streets of Italy amid efforts to overthrow the Republic. So we've talked at some length in this series about the Ordine Nuovo, a violent extra-parliamentary terrorist group associated with the fascist movement of Italy. As mentioned, Ordine Nuovo split off from the Italian social movement at the behest of its leader Giuseppe Pino Rauti, but it's difficult to understand the organization and the extra-parliamentary right from which it came without delving at least a little bit into the history. Now, Rauti had been born in 1926 in the small town of Cardinale in the poor southern province of Calabria. We've talked about Calabria in the episode about the Reggio Revolt, which took place in the city of Reggio at the very tip of the boot of Italy. This is generally a poor region, mostly agrarian, with a strong mafia influence. Rauti's father was a fascist, and Rauti followed his father into the party. In 1943, the Allies invaded Italy from Sicily into Naples, and Rauti, at the age of about 17, joined the Republican Guard to fight for what was left of Mussolini's fascist republic with his father. After Mussolini's regime fell and, the, and Italy was liberated, Pino Rauti fled to Spain, but he returned in 1946. His father, who had been blacklisted from most public service due to his staunch fascism, went to work as a night guard in Rome. So Pino found himself in Rome at the age of about 20 in a hotbed of fascist underground activity, seething with rage and resentment against the Allied occupiers. And the leader of this fascist underground is a guy named Pino Romualdi. Romualdi was born in 1913, just before World War I, in the same town as Mussolini, a place called Predopio, in the northeast. You can go back and read in the missives of 1944 from Mussolini's papers about how Romualdi was nominated to become the vice secretary of the fascist Republican Party with his headquarters to be in Milan. But the regime fell in April of the following year, and even after that, Romualdi wasn't about to give up. Just as fascism initially gained power through a loosely knit mass movement of violent squads networked together through Mussolini's main offices and his network, Il Popolo d'Italia, Romualdi hoped to rekindle the fascist movement through underground associations of revolutionary groups that would commit sabotage and restore the legacy of fascism. Just months after the collapse of Mussolini's regime, on October 28th, the anniversary of the March on Rome, a squad of fascists climbed the tower of the militia in Rome and hoisted the black flag. It would be carried out by Romualdi's group, Credere, and followed by a series of raids, mostly in Rome but also in Milan, marking the inaugural days of the Fasci di Azione Revoluzionaria, or the FAR. According to a fascist named Cesco Giulio Baghino, the FAR were made up of young veterans of the RSE, the uh, Italian Social Republic. I remember 
Our goal was the defense of the idea. The most determined also carried out demonstrative actions. Other similar groups included the clandestine anti-communist forces or the national anti-communist forces. Bagino continued, The organization was much smaller and, above all, much less armed than was believed. It consisted practically in the activism of some young friends and comrades, armed above all with courage, initiative, and goodwill. The real weapons were a machine gun, four to five machine pistols, about 20 or so more hand grenades between Italians and Germans, and a lot of dynamite, which we transported from one side of Rome to the other to my ever-new shelters. Meeting points where young activists agreed to prepare and study with me what was necessary for the hits. The black flag on the Tower of the Militia on October 28, 1945, a blow to the Monte Mario radio station, the first letter bombs, those were all born like this. While posters and newspapers came out of our tiny printing house contained in a cabinet in my room, it was necessary to show that we were alive and determined to act. They did things like pull up outside of the Communist Party headquarters and throw bombs, or the socialist newspaper Avanti. Rauti found himself joining the FAR in 1946 and taking part in some important actions for which he would go to jail more than once. He states, I wasn't a leader of the FAR, but I was part of it. I was asked to do useful things for the organization and I did them. Once fearing a police raid, I was asked to secure precious documents. We decided to hide them, as we had done on other occasions, with a priest, a fascist, who was at the Gregorian University in Via 4th of November. The precious documents were actually the entire collection of Italian life that belonged to Giovanni Preziosi. Here I'll just add on a personal note that Preziosi, on an academic note, that Preziosi was a viciously anti-Semitic longtime member of Mussolini's fascist party who had committed suicide. Rauti continues, In addition to the collection, there was an, also an archive, which contained all the names of the people mentioned at least in one issue of the magazine. It should be borne in mind that it was an entire collection of the newspaper which ranged from 1911 to 1945, a total of six very heavy wooden crates with thousands of cards. A very interesting thing. We organized a transport group. We phoned the priest telling him that we had to hand over these coffers. He told us that at the time it was impossible since he was presiding over a conference. He told us to go to him after a few hours. I remember wandering for a long time on the trams in the area along with the heavy crates, waiting for the conference to end. The story has a curious postscript. The priest fell in love with a beautiful woman, an exponent of the Communist Party, and for her he left both the cassock and the fascist milieu, but brought with him the archive of Preziosi, which he handed over to the Communist Party, in whose closets I think it's still located. Then the priest, who had moved to Bologna, had a mystical crisis and retired to a cloistered convent. So, Rauti proved himself useful as a sort of errand boy and foot soldier of the Italian fascist movement under Romualdi, who wants to create a new fascist party and ultimately bring about a violent revolution against the Republic. 
Toward the establishment of that new fascist party, Romualdi and the FAR joined a number of other leaders the following year, in December 1946, to launch a party called the Italian Social Movement, or MSE. These groups had names like Italian Front, the Italian National Party, and the Lombard Nationalist Groups, as, w- as well as publications like Rivolta Ideale and Rosso e Nero, or Red and Black. According to the minutes from the December 3rd meeting, they promised, quote, to launch a manifesto calling them together in the fight for the country's supreme interests forgotten or betrayed by how much its ruins are worth for factional interests. A leader of the FAR named Giacinto Trevisono became the first head of the MSE, while another fascist leader named Giorgio Almirante came up with the logo of a tricolor flame. But the milieu remained divided despite the new junta. One participant named Enzo Era noted that, quote, recognizing fascism in Mussolini's Italian Social Republic in its last determination did not mean that we all fully recognized ourselves only in that type of fascism. Instead, he notes, we spent whole nights debating what may seem like nuances today. I remember having had the wee hours, having spent the wee hours arguing with Masi on how to actually understand the definition of arbiter in Marx. That is, whether to refer to all workers or only to the workers of heavy industry. I remember insults and screams on the subject of socialization and how much it should have been extended. Era had studied idealism while growing up in fascist Italy, and his understanding of politics meant that he was inclined to want to create governmental structures first and then deal with what they called social problems. With this in mind, he developed his own journal called Sfida, or Challenge, at the end of 1947, and it goes on to represent the more spiritualist faction of the fascist movement. This is the area to which Rauti begins to gravitate. Svita was a young newspaper made by young people. It's not that we still had a big cultural background behind us, Rauti recalls, but we were forming it. Of course, we had a spiritualist and ethical tendency, but it must be borne in mind that at that age, any trend is just pronounced. Era was our leader, great speaker, strong guy, at only 21 my same age, he had already entered the national leadership of the party. But remember, 1947 and 1948 are intense years. The U.S. has been trying to cultivate ties with the far right to keep the communists in check, and 1948 is the year of the first elections. The communists lose, and Palmiro Togliatti is shot by a fascist student. The head of the communist party is in the hospital, leading Italy to the edge of left-wing revolution as his supporters rise up in the factories. The city of Genoa is basically taken over by a communist insurrection, and the fascists end up working with the police to restore order. When there was an attack on Togliatti and numerous communist uprisings broke out in different cities, the police headquarters of Genoa, one of the most turbulent cities, had information on what was happening from us at the far. Bagino admitted. 
As for the coup on April 18th, there has always been a rumor among us that we would have intervened in support of the armed services, but I have never had direct feedback on this. Pino Rauti explained, quote, It was known that in those years the Carabinieri in a barracks behind Piazza Colla di Rienzo kept a special structure ready in anti-communist function. Already on the occasion of 1946, fearing that with the victory of the Republic there would be a Soviet invasion, my father, who had joined the RSI, and for this reason the Italian Social Republic, and for this reason had been purged and forced to be a night guard, confessed to me that all the private vigilantes of Rome, about 4,000 people, mostly former fascists, had been put on alert. I don't know if he was bragging or not, but he seemed very confident. However, it was clear that if the communists had won, we would have taken to the streets alongside the army. For us, it would have been life or death. So, in the mid to late 1940s, there's obvious collaboration between the Carabinieri, local police, and Fasci di Azione Revoluzionaria to maintain order in the event of widespread unrest. And this collaboration was part of a broader structure set into place to act as fighters behind enemy lines in the event of a Soviet invasion. However, law enforcement also sought to keep the excesses of the fascists in check when they could. In one case, Italy was returning some ships to the Soviet Navy and the FAR decided to sink the Italian ship, the Christopher Columbus, to prevent it from falling into the hands of the Soviets. For this, FAR member Clemente Graziani, who was a student at the time, was arrested, along with six others. These kinds of trips to jail were pretty common in the fascist milieu, and jail ended up a place to deepen the political education of young fascists. Rauti remembers, quote, the first time I read something about Evola, Giulio Evola, was in prison, in Regina Coeli, during one of the many arrests we suffered at the time for our political activity. In Regina Coeli, there's a, one of the best-stocked political libraries around. Every political prisoner, and several generations, have passed Regina Coeli, used to leave some of his readings in prison for those who remain, for those who will come, so as not to carry too many weights, not to carry too much weight, creating an accumulation of political texts. That's how, one afternoon, I discovered Evola's first important text, Revolt Against the Modern World. It seemed fabulous to me, exhaustive of any explanation of existence and history. But I had never heard of its author. On the contrary, I thought he was even dead. When I left prison, I discovered he was alive and began, along with others, to see him. Evola, who had been paralyzed by an allied shell that fell nearby while he was walking around during the war to test his willpower, was a weird guy who believed in esoteric spirituality and traditionalist hatred of the modern world, asserting the need for the restoration of patriarchal hi hierarchies like the ancient samurai and chivalric orders in order to attack liberalism in a war waged by what he called political soldiers. The meetings between the young fascists of the FAR and Evola 
became deeply significant for Rauti. Quote, Evola knew everything about the SS, even the background of some of their secret esoteric and magical structures, which have been so fantasized about, but of which little has been known. He opened his eyes to the so-called unknown fascism and their leaders. He told us about the French writers Drew La Rochelle and Robert Brasilic and Léon de Grel, whom he had personally met. He made us read Bardesh. In short, it made us understand that fascism was a cosmic event that was part of a historical continuity. He always said that the shapes of regimes pass like clothes or shoe shapes. The important thing is that their conception of the world remains unchanged. And then, which puts us in great controversy with many comrades of the MSE, he made us overcome the concept of nationalism to arrive at a different concept. Our homeland is where we fight for our idea. It therefore led us to recognize our fellow men across borders and time. Increasingly, the spiritualist group within the MSE that was associated both with the FAR and the journal Svida came under Evola's tutelage and influence. For Era, the editor of Svida, quote, against the principles and structure of popular sovereignty and the division of the three powers of the democratic state, the principles and structure of our state had to be affirmed, which are ethical, aristocratic, hierarchical. To reflect their ideological direction, the spiritualists of the MSE create a new paper called Imperium and manage to convince Evola to publish one of his newer diatribes called Orientamente. On October 28, 1950, the anniversary of the March on Rome and exactly five years after the inauguration of the FAR, a new organization was born, the Legione Nera, or the Black Legion. In the Piazza Colonna, members of the FAR blew up a small bomb in a car packed with leaflets, spreading propaganda to passers-by. The following month, on November 16th, the headquarters of the Republican Party of Italy and the Socialist Party were bombed with some serious explosives. The next month, Pino Rauti was arrested in Rome, and two months after that, Enzo Era got snatched. However, on March 12th of 1951, the U.S. Embassy, the Foreign Ministry, and the delegation from Yugoslavia were all bombed as part of the general movement to keep the eastern border city of Trieste within Italy. The next month, on April 10th, the Black Legion struck again, bombing a house next to the Ministry of the Interior, and just over a week later, Minister of Interior Shelba's house was nearly blown up, but the bomb failed to detonate. Soon after, on the anniversary of the liberation, the offices of the National Association of Partisans of Italy in Rome, Milan, and Brescia are all attacked. But when police notice that the Black Legion's propaganda has the same typeface as Imperium, the whole thing starts to unravel. Clemente Graziani is arrested again, along with a number of others in the milieu, and even Evola is caught up in the dragnet. Evola was kept in the infirmary of the jail until trial. 
Era, who denies having been part of the Black Legion, remembers the morbid scene. Quote, When the trial began and we saw Avila lying on a sheet carried by some policemen, it struck us. The police pointed to him as the ideologue of the group, being convinced that the Black Legion, the Far, and Imperium were the same thing. Indeed, that Imperium was the organ of the Far. Since it was not true, the castle of accusations fell quickly. But having, albeit unintentionally, involved someone like Evola made us feel sick. When they took him to the courtroom, Rauti and I looked each other in the face. I took courage and approached the teacher. We expected a great rebuke on his part, but he didn't have a single word of reproach. When we got out of the prison, we went back to visit him at home. We said to him, Professor, we are mortified. He said, Please don't even mention it. Rawati recalls it a little bit differently, noting that, quote, in fact, Evola looked at us very badly from afar with his monocle. He made us eloquent signs of disapproval. Luckily, it ended well for everyone. He calmed down and began to receive us again. But the spiritualist faction that revolved around Evola was opposed by the so-called left wing of the MSC, which rejected the formalization of party structures and instead started with the Italian workers. More strictly, more strictly nationalist in the modern sense of the term, this group sought to socialize big business interests while returning to imperial power regionally. One of their members, Ugo Franzolin, was sent by the MSC's newspaper Il Secolo d'Italia to interview Evola, and he didn't like what he found. Quote, All these esoteric young people who considered themselves superior and look themselves terribly serious, they were a sect. It was no longer fascism. Or at least it wasn't fascism that I meant. For me, fascism meant civilizing Africa. It was Italy. It was the war against plutocracies. It was socialization. It was Valerio Borghese, the means of assault, something alive, vital, popular. Rauti would counter that, quote, Of course, if fascism means reductively what was expressed by the Mussolini experience, then that was not fascism. But for us... Fascism was and is much more. I insist on this point a lot. I insist a lot on this point. Until 1950, for us, the fascist cultural universe was represented by Italian nationalism, Corridoni, Gentile, Volpe, as well as Pirandello and Ducati, Marinetti and D'Annunzio. In short, all the great intellectuals of the Mussolinian regime. We didn't know any other references. Then comes Evola, and it introduces us to a world unknown to us, much wider and more complex than the prov provincial and asphyxiated one we have come to terms with so far. He talks to us about Newt Hamsun, who knew about him before, or Charles Moraz. He told us, read Malinsky's Occult War. We read it, and for us, it is a shock text. It speaks of an anti-traditionalist plot against the central empires, re-evaluating, for example, the Habsburg Empire. So I've always pronounced Evolian teaching. I've been doing it for decades, especially in youth environments. It's a new way of feeling fascist. Although many dispute me, 
saying that it is actually a way to not feel fascist, a heresy in short. So these disputes between the conservative faction of the MSE, which supports anti-communism above anything else, the left wing of the MSE, which supports socialization of big business, and the right wing, which views itself as, above all, spiritually reactionary, finally comes to a head in the 1950s. And Enzo Era, who had led the spiritualist faction, starts to get sidelined. In 1952, Era becomes the director of the Student and Workers Youth Group of the MSE. Here, he obtains some success, but with success comes jealousy and the party's leaders start to pull back on the chain. So to keep the group going, Era starts to compromise with the centrist tendency in the fascist movement, and the spiritualists start to rebel against him. The spiritualists insisted that he had capitulated to democracy and had fallen from the principles of aristocracy and absolute intransigence. In the sharpest criticisms, the spiritualists accused their former leader of hoping to escape the symbolic place of the Holy Grail, of hoping to escape the Holy Grail, in which they hoped to wait until the end of the Kali Yuga, or the Dark Age. For his part, Evola did not exclude the notion that Italy would go back to a monarchy, since monarchs represented to him the higher princes who weren't susceptible to the changes in society. However, by 1954, when his term at the Student and Workers Youth Group was finished, Era had become, in the eyes of the spiritualist current, known simply as the current, a tactician who was trying to unite the different factions within the, with the center rather than a pure traditionalist. It was in this atmosphere that the spiritualists broke with Era and convened in 1954 in the Prato district of Rome at the local MSE headquarters. Pino Rauti, Clemente Graziani, and some others came together to create a new faction, a new theoretical body called the Centro Studi Ordine Nuovo, or the New Order Study Center. Rauti declares, quote, Ordine Nuovo was born from the merger of intellectual bodies and activist bodies. It was the result of an agreement made in Rome between me, Clemente Graziani, and Sergio Baldessini. We felt the need to have a greater impact on the party's line. Although we had always been distant, the left of the MSE also began to look at us with sympathy. One of the original members, Stefano della Chiaia, recalls, quote, We weren't so many, but the current extended very quickly. Almost all the young Romans and some Milanese joined in. I remember above all many Neapolitans, very prepared young people. It wasn't long before the Ordine Nuovo started to have a real impact, first physically on competing factions within the MSE. We had real physical clashes with what we called the directional faction, those young people, that is, who uncritically aligned with the directives of the national leadership. We saw them as mere executioners of orders, without an awareness and preparation worthy of a political soldier. 
said one of the members, Signorelli. As for Era, he became what he called a, quote, close collaborator of Michelini, the leader of the conservative faction of the MSE, who attended the leadership of the party during, who attained the leadership of the whole party during that year, 1954. But the fighting between factions got worse and worse until a national congress was to be held in Milan in 1956. In the lead-up to the congress, Ordine Nuovo members attempted to intervene physically to prevent the final Central Committee meeting from taking place. Stefano della Chiaia recalls that, quote, at the time Michelini had a group of beaters, in short, bodyguards, which protected the management. They were guided by a very strange character, a former damned without a hand. The clash with, hit, with, the clash with them was inevitable. At some point, Rauti intervened and ordered us to retreat. In this climate, we arrived at the Congress in Milan. So in Milan, 1956, Ordine Nuovo decides to support Giorgio Almirante for the head of the MSE in place of Michelini, because they know that Almirante doesn't share their politics, but at least he's more radical. However, as Ordine Nuovo brings together 30 votes for Almirante, some delegates of the MSE start to confer, and they leave the Congress while the vote is taking place. In the end, Michelini wins by just seven votes. So the Ordine Nuovo abandons the MSE, and the group starts to collapse in on itself. When general elections come in 1958, Stefano della Chiaia demands that the group calls for complete abstention, abandoning the MSE politically. Rauti refuses to do so, and della Chiaia creates his own group called the Revolutionary Action Groups in a kind of compromise with the Ordine Nuovo leadership. He wants to get carte blanche to do anything with this new organization, but some within the Ordine Nuovo start to chastise him. At the same party headquarters in which Ordine Nuovo had been founded in 1954, Della Chiaia demands, in a heated meeting, that the leadership of Ordine Nuovo endorse the creation of a more explicitly militant political movement. This demand is shot down, and in his words, he, quote, withdrew his word of honor from Ordine Nuovo and abandoned the study center. So while the Ordine Nuovo had also abandoned the MSE, they wouldn't publicly criticize it or call for abstentions in the same way that Della Chiaia wanted them to. So he created his own group called the Avanguardia Nazionale, which represented a more explicit political movement rather than a more cultural one. Hence, while Ordine Nuovo would carry out violent attacks and demonstrative actions, they didn't extend to the economic and political struggle to the same extent as the Avanguardia Nazionale. But more on that in the next episode, as we continue to examine political, economic, and ideological differences among the extraparliamentary right of Italy in the 1960s 
going into the formation of what Graziani would later call indiscriminate terrorism. I'm Alexander Reed Ross, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Ears of Lead Pod.